Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Brenda Sandberg, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 28th, 2022, and once again, drug pricing is on the agenda. But did it ever really slide off the agenda? In this case, some may be, some may be wondering whether it should. Mike McCann wrote an interesting story on a Congressional Budget Office report that showed drug prices have trended down from 2009 to 2018. The report looked at prices paid by Medicare Part D and Medicaid during that period and found that the net prescription price fell from $57 in 2009 to $50 in 2018 in Part D and from $63 to $48 in Medicaid. The trend was fueled by increased use of generics, but CBO said brand prices also continued to rise. So I know generic drug advocates were excited about this report. I, I saw at least a couple of tweets from some groups touting what, what had happened, what the findings. So for my drug pricing experts here, could data like this reframe the pricing debate as as Mike suggests in the story? I, um, <laughs> I kind of strongly disagree with <laughs> Mike's um, suggestion. Um, <laughs> I guess, I mean, the big thing is this doesn't really surprise anybody that's been closely following drug pricing trends for a while now. Um, yes, there have been some like very high profile examples of older drugs off patent that have, you know, had price spikes. But for the most part, right, there has been generic deflation, generic drugs on a whole, if you can lump them in with brand drugs, are bringing down, you know, the prices of what mm -hmm. people pay. And um, I just see that the them as two. And again, I mean, the CBO report shows like, you know, a huge percentage of the prescriptions people are getting are generic. So that's good. A lot of people are benefiting, I guess, from, you know, generic availability. But the problem is if you are taking a brand drug and a brand drug that is, you know, under exclusivity or patent protection for another 10, 15 years or is going to have difficulty or is never going to potentially even have good generic competition because it's such a complex product and we know biosimilars haven't you know come to market super fast or brought down the price as much I mean those people those seniors you know Medicare and so forth I don't think they care that generic drugs are cheaper right if it's their if they're on the expensive brand name drugs you know they don't care about that those overall trends and I think um, those are two pretty um, separate se separate things going on. So I think it's, I mean, I think the drug industry, the branded drug industry definitely has tried to use this data at times and make that point. But um, I, I don't think it, uh, I think most people have poked a lot of holes in it at this point, and it's hard for me to see that being revived as something that would get them off the hook for reform when you're, um, for any reform that's focused very specifically on brand industry pricing. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the top, the, the, all the spending still goes to what is it like? Are there like 10 drugs or, or something that constitute a, the bulk of the spending in, in, in Part D or something like that? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I mean, the, the, the most of the spending is still is not going to generics. It's going to, you know, these, this like collection of brand drugs that are 
Right. And some people who are, who are taking an expensive brand in medicine may have a generic option that they just don't realize or, you know, maybe because it's something similar and seemed equivalent or something. But, you know, a lot of people, they just don't don't have that option of a cheaper alternative. And um, again, I, I, I think like on a whole, people don't really care about the trend, these kinds of trends like and in term and politicians I think sort of understand that they care kind of about what their um, financial burden is and you know for many diseases and conditions right now you know the best options may be a very expensive brand drug Um, and yeah I just I, I just would be surprised if this if industry was really able to capitalize on this, because like I said, it's really um, a continuation of trends we've known for a while now, and they have tried in the past <laughs> to use these arguments, and I, like clearly it hasn't gotten them off the hook yet. I, I agree, Sarah, and if, I, I think if any of us talk to people, family members or friends who are on drugs, uh, you know, you just hear about how the prices have gone up. One friend of mine, she was really happy to be able to get a drug from Canada, and the price was much less, and you know, my mother was waiting for a, a drug to go generic because it was so expensive. And I, I think it's just not the top 10 brand drugs, but it's just that drugs across the board. They're really expensive. And, you know, when companies put out their price increase, oh, we stayed below 10%, but okay, so 8% increase every year. That's a really hefty increase. Yeah, this this seems unlikely to change the uh, the whole dynamic of uh, um, the uh, um the debate and uh, Brenda, you make a great point that uh, you know that's sort of kind of these uh, these pricing pledges are sort of kind of uh, um, pretty remarkable. We're given this for kind of the outrage about uh, um, you know seven percent inflation just seems uh, incredible, and here uh, you know pharma companies are patting themselves on the back for nine uh, percent uh, inflation. <laughs> and uh, um, it's interesting to to see that sort of uh, uh, companies themselves had opposed uh, um, the iterations of uh, pricing reform because they thought it would sort of kind of you know decrease their markets as we're kind of if there's less uh, um, gap between uh, what a brand name uh, can sell for and what the uh, the generic could come in for it sort of becomes less of a uh, profitable business and there's less rationale for the generic so sort of kind of uh, in a sense the uh, um, the success of generics is predicated on the the enormous uh, brand prices that uh, um, remain uncontrolled and you know I think this whole uh, you know prices coming down overall is a great talking point for people who, who would be opposed to the uh, reform efforts uh, um, anyway, but it's not going to, I don't think it's really going to change uh, hearts and minds on Capitol Hill uh, for the, uh, the the broad proposals, which, uh, um, Sarah, you did some reporting today that sort of, or this week, that sort of kind of suggested that maybe those uh, um, proposals are, uh, um, you know, sort of kind of uh, um, paused, but they they might uh, they might come back uh, um, at some point uh, this, this spring, huh? Right. I mean, um, essentially, um, for for people to kind of catch up, you know, drug price negotiation was looked like it was going to kind of take a ride on this rather large um, social spending package the Biden administration and Congress have put together known as Build Back Better that um, sort of collapsed um, at the end of the year. due to just not being able to get um, enough agreement among Senate Democrats because they they're doing it under this reconciliation process. You don't need any Republicans to pass it, but you do need, given the tight margins, they do need all the Democrats essentially. But basically comments from both President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and then even this week, um, 
Senator Juan Wyden really indicate there's they're looking to basically kind of pare down that package and hopefully still use the reconciliation process to get some of their priorities done this year and all indications are that drug pricing is one of those priorities and they democrats want to be able to campaign on that coming up in midterm elections the drug pricing provisions save money so it allows them to also pay for other popular um healthcare reforms or healthcare priorities they want to do like um, extending subsidies for the affordable care act um, and making those permanent um, and we also kind of know that while there were some democrats who had issues with portions of build back better a lot of people think that the drug pricing part was pretty much okay with everybody at this point the only i mean the big question does become so if you had this big package and somebody was a little hesitant on drug pricing but they signed on because they got you know their other priority why in there and you pull that out what happens so there that is a little bit of a question for a few people but most people say like if democrats are able to do kind of a smaller social spending package drug pricing should catch a ride um this year and obviously democrats this is probably democrat this might be democrats last chance to do this for a while because there's a decent chance that um you know in the fall either the house or senate or potentially both could flip control um and now of course um i think kathy kelly wrote, wrote about this our colleague and then someone else i talked to with the story also talked about how you know at the end of the day this may be the best case scenario for Pharma, um, you know, it, it, it is a hit um, and CBO put out a recent analysis that maybe suggests it's a little bit more of a hit than they initially predicted. And, you know, depending on the type of drugs you're working on or the pathway you want to go through at FDA, maybe it's even more of a hit for you in particular, but it's still a relatively small hit and they just feel like taking this hit might get them out of a much bigger hit down the road and essentially kind of stabilize the market for them. You know, once it happens, you know, that's sort of baked into the stock market, I guess, and, you know, things going forward and it, it just might kind of stabilize things for the industry. So that's an interesting thing to think about, too. I mean, I don't think we'll actually see any concessions from pharma to that. You know, they're going <laughs> to they're going to fight tooth and nail against this until it happens. But um you know, some people are making this strong argument that maybe they should just kind of take this, um, you know, sort of um, this 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 kind of hit and reform, which probably they're arguing won't be too bad overall, and rather than risk something worse down the line. Yeah, if you're going to have to uh, suffer drug pricing reform, you want to uh, suffer it from the uh, weakest, uh, smallest uh, Democratic majority you can imagine, and that's sort of almost what we have. Uh, uh, right now, so that that is a uh, interesting idea. That's sort of kind of that if uh, um, you know there is some sort of swing, some few election cycles down the road where there's sort of kind of more robust uh, majorities. I don't think uh, this having passed or kind of guarantees that they won't uh, um, uh, you know sort of kind of be under in the uh, um, uh, you know sort of uh, um, you know in the uh, um, in the, in the uh, a target next time uh, um, either. But it does sort of kind of give them a good talking point, saying like you know we've already done this reform, it's not, uh, um, uh, you know, it's not uh, something that we uh, need to do again. Uh, so uh, interesting point, uh, sir. So the 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 CBO actually changed the way it it calculated whether, you know, like the the uh, the reduction in 
potentially new drugs that could make it to market? Is that is that what happened, Sarah? Right. They they put they took into account a few new factors like the impact of the accelerated approval pathway. I guess f- how much you know the impact of preclinical development and financing and so forth. So um, they had initially predicted essentially that the new policy, partially because I think of how long it takes to kind of get it off the ground, but also just because sort of certain investment decisions, once they're already made, they're pro- they're kind of like on the path and they're not going to change immediately because of new legislation tomorrow. So they sort of predict that like in the first decade or so after the law, there's there's some reduction in new drugs, but the policy sort of really starts to like reach its like biggest impact and then stabilize at year 10. And they had initially predicted like a 10%, sorry, an 8% reduction in new drugs at year 10 um, and then kind of um, and then going forward and now they're predicting more of a 10% reduction. So, you know, it's um, I think that's something like going from like 34 fewer products to 40 fewer products. So, you know, you can argue how big a difference that is. But the, yeah, then there's like this focus in the report that seems to suggest um, the policy might hit harder on drugs going through expedited pathways like accelerated approval, which is sort of interesting, again, given how much we know um, companies and just certain therapeutic um, categories tend to rely on the pathway. Their model, the, this new model <laughs> that they put out was kind of a slide deck and there's not a lot of detail about kind of the assumptions they took in so forth so you kind of have to like pick their brains a little bit (laughs) or you know sort of try and mind read exactly what they were why they were thinking this but you know in general people were talking about how you know this new drug negotiation plan democrats have would just focus on the higher price drugs which often are accelerated approval products um there's often just a bigger risk in um accelerated approval in general right because sometimes it's harder to know how payers and so forth and coverage uptake will will work when you don't have that hard clinical outcome. So they feel like in general, if there's a, always a little bit more risk of science approval, that just gets a little bit higher under that pathway. So it will be interesting to see if any particular companies or parts of the biotech sector or anything feel particularly more concerned about this now. But, you know, it's just it's an it's another um, adjustment to the report and also just sort of shows like how it's really hard to predict how these policies will actually play out in the real world. Yeah, I'm really curious if, you know, and I noticed in the story you meant, you know, the the Agihelm example was was thrown in there. And, you know, you wonder if something like this could change the, you know, kind of the business case calculus that's that goes on in trying to determine whether or not to, you know, go from phase one to phase two or phase two to phase three or so forth. You know, if if you think that the, you know, yeah, you could get the accelerated approval, but now with, you know, the way the reimbursement's gonna occur, you know, is gonna occur, you know, does that that does that change you from a yes to a no? I, I don't know, but it'd be curious to see how much of a factor something like that would, you know, would play in a decision like that. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's essentially what CBO is um, trying to model and kind of guesstimate here. Um, right. And so, and like, it, again, it's just, it's just really hard to perfectly predict. And, um, you know, some people argue that, 
you know, it's not appropriate to, to really even focus on, you know, the, this number of drugs because, you know, you really have to think more carefully about, okay, what are the quality of the drugs we're losing? You know, that is just much more complicated than, you know, are we are we losing game changer drugs for patients? Are we, you know, losing something that's, you know, again, might have a very incremental benefit for a few groups of people. So it's it's really complicated. And obviously, um, both, you know, pharma does tend to really cling to these numbers as and seems like that is one of their most effective strategies in sort of um, making people worried about how, you know, these policies could play out in terms of, you know, I think it does um, make people nervous when they hear, you know, there will be less new drugs because they just sort of worry, like, what if it's for my condition, you know, where I really need something. Yeah. It's, it's just really hard to know. But yeah, you, know, you, have, you have a rare disease, you have a rare cancer you know, and there's one or two drugs in the pipeline, you don't want to hear that it's not, you know, monetarily feasible anymore. Yeah, CBO has often said that they, they're not, uh, you know, sure the overall impact of that kind of trade-off. That's for kind of that, uh, you know, more access to medicines uh, because of cheaper prices versus for kind of um, access to more medicines because of uh, new innovation. So it's uh, um, be interesting to see some sort of some, uh, some modeling on uh, um, kind of obviously it, it depends on what the products are, but uh, on kind of how that might play out in terms of kind of the the population health impact of those two uh, two paths that uh, um, that might be taken depending on sort of how pricing uh, reform goes. Yeah, it's an interesting an interesting issue and one we'll be uh, we'll be following going forward here as they they do more models and try and and uh, you know pass the bill ultimately. Next up is an FDA advertising enforcement action. Brenda, this time the agency went after promotion on Instagram? Yeah, I, I don't know that this is the first time they've gone after uh, Instagram posts. I think that um, if you remember back in 2015 that Khloe Kardashian had an Instagram post, but this the, the actual details of what the, how the post played out um, was, was different. Um, this was uh, Lily's um, had an Instagram post for their diabetes drug Trulicity, and it included a video. And FDA said that um, they didn't adequately communicate the drug's indication, limits of use, and risk. And they really focused on the distracting visuals that ran. Um, there was, a, you know, attention grabbing the color, um, the fast beat of musical beat, um, and that that distracted, you know, when all that all the visuals came with the claims benefit, but that over over took um, information about indication and limits of use and also um, the risk information. Um, FDA said that, you know, the risk information was presented in a small window at the bottom of the video. And <clears throat> this is um, like, like um, it sounds like the FDA's objection to television ads, you know, where there's distracting visuals and the risk information is like presented in very small text. Um, but but um, there was a King and Spalding had a webinar on on this um, a couple of days ago. Well, not on this. Uh, on they they did a look at 2021 drug promotion um, and the trends that that they'd seen. But they pointed out that that it was an analogous to DC DTC TV ads, and also that FDA had never you know issued a a, a letter like this before. Um, and that it was really like a lack of fair balance on Lily's part. 
so it, it's something for companies to be, you know, beware of. Um, but also what's interesting about this is that it's the second time um, in the last month that or a couple months that uh, Lily has really, um, you know, come up with a novel advertising campaign just a week before FDA issued this untitled letter. They posted an untitled letter that they sent Lily in December over its Emgality package of television ads for um, for the migraine drug that showed Olympic athletes and a Paralympic athlete um, promoting promoting the drug. And, and what's, what's interesting is that uh, FDA posted Lily's response to that letter to the untitled letter, and they've never done that before, posted a company's response, and they did that this week um, af after, you know, the news about the untitled letter. And and I think that, I mean, I don't know that this is true, but I think that uh, Lily encouraged them to do so because Lily's response letter goes into much, much more detail than, than FDA's um, than FDA's um, response to it. FDA responded in great detail saying what happened was that FDA, that Lilly had three components, three separate ads. One was a disease state ad, one was a reminder ad, and one was a full TV segment with the risks and indications. But when Lilly submitted their form 2253 with the ad, they didn't explain to FDA that the, the connection between these pieces. So FDA just looked at them, a couple of them individually and said that they were missing risk information. So, um, so th that was, uh, <laughs> you know, un kind of unheard of before. And also what FDA did is they posted the response letter and then they also went back and posted closeout letters for the three other companies that got untitled letters last year. And um, although FDA said that it's not unusual that they do post untitled letters, it's so long after the fact um, that they close out. And if you look at those untitled letters that they, I mean, the closeout letters they posted, they're very um, cursory, like, well, they responded and everything's fine. Whereas with the closeout letter for Lily was very lengthy and explained the whole process and everything that went on. So I think that the Mgality experience, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, pushed or led to FDA changing its policy and posting closeout letters. But um, it, it, now, starting to do it now, although they say that closeout letters are available, it's, it's, I couldn't find them on their website for warning letters. And certainly for, if you look, it's very easy with untitled letters. They're right there and they, they list them on the line and, and it's like, there's the letter, there was the response and there was a closeout letter. But for the warning letters, um, it's not it's not so clear. It does seem like the um, FDA perhaps uh, uh, got some facts wrong in the uh, Mgality situation, uh, Brenda. They were they were suggesting that those uh, you know three advertisements were ran separately, which you know would have sort of kind of violated uh, um, you know disclosure uh, um, uh, guidelines in terms of, sort of including the uh, you know the risks and uh, um, so forth. But uh, you know Lilly uh, was able to demonstrate that sort of kind of they in fact did. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, run together as they uh, as they should have. So that's what kind of could have prompted uh, FDA to be uh, to perhaps be more uh, um, uh, disclosure oriented on sort of kind of the um, the response for kind of putting up the uh, um, the close out letter simultaneously, saying that like, well, this is a, a you know, uh, we did send this uh, untitled letter, but you know, sort of it's immediately sort of closed uh, um, 
closed out for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Although it, uh, Lily had asked them to, to withdraw the letter and they declined to do that. Well, I'm not going to complain about more transparency. So, you know, <laughs> I'm okay with them with the, all the correspondence being being posted just so we can see what what's going on. But getting back to the um, the Instagram uh, letter, and I'm going to just say right now that I'm not on Instagram. So those of you who are, I you probably understand what's going on here. <laughs> but um, it, do you think that this, you know, does this letter kind of, uh, maybe precipitate some kind of guidance update or, you know, because, you know, they have the guidance on social media promotion and so forth. I mean, do we need like an Instagram guidance now? I mean, we have what we have, like a Twitter guidance. We have a we have like an, uh, a, a, a search ad type of, you know, guidance and so forth. I mean, do, do they need to do some kind of updating for that, you think? Well, several years ago, they published a social media guidance, and that applies to that would apply to Twitter and Instagram. And it's and it's been it's been a while since I looked at it, but if my memory is serves me, they explain when you have limited space, you know, you need to make sure that you have the, you know, ad adequate information about risk, et cetera. I think that maybe this is slightly different because it involved a video, and I don't know if that's um, if that's a new wrinkle in this, but I think that, um, you know, people have been waiting for FDA to issue more, further social media guidance, and they said last year that, you know, um, that they were, that they couldn't predict when they would. It's been a really long time. It, it's been several years since that social media guidance came out. So, um, you know, maybe all these developments will impact what the guidance actually covers. And by the time the guidance is actually issued, Instagram will have kind of lost its luster and everyone will moved on to the next thing. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, Derek, you said when you said you're not on Instagram, I was thinking and I feel like I'm, you know, older, out of touch because I'm not on TikTok or, you know, <laughs> Snapchat or whatever, like the other hipper, hipper ones these days. So, right. <laughs> I guess it depends what age group you're targeting. <laughs> but yeah, it's constantly changing. Although I think as we were sort of talking about earlier, you know, some of the ways video and so forth is presented on these platforms is actually not as different as you would think as um, from watching an ad on TV. So, you know, I think that there is some need in certain cases for the agency probably to have specific social media guidance and in other ways, you know, you can probably just figure out, you know, how to apply what's the current rules of the road for TV to, or broadcast, you know, to these newer platforms. Yeah, sort of a screen is a screen. I don't know if there's some dynamic where we're kind of, uh, you know, text of a certain ratio actually is unintelligible at a, at a you know smaller size or uh, or what have you. But uh, you know, maybe that's my uh, my aging eyesight and realizing that sort of kind of people much younger than me sort of kind of uh, feel out of touch is sort of both uh, I guess sort of uh, refreshing and a little uh, a little depressing at the same time. So uh, um, <laughs> good to have this uh, social media uh, uh, awareness uh, session here. So. <laughs> well, also it, that that whole issue of how you present risk information that comes up like over and over in their letters. Like, oh, you're, you know, you're you're downplaying it. It's small. It's it's in smaller print. It's at the bottom of the page. It appears on TV very briefly. You know, there's distracting visuals. I mean, that that's like, uh, and I 
Yeah, that's just like so commonsensical that you would, I mean, they've got, the industry's gotten so many comments from FDA about that, that it just would seem no matter what format you're using that you make sure that the risk information is prominent, as prominent as the, the benefits. Yeah, there was even one where I think they, they got, the company got dinged because the, like the risk information was on the screen at the same time as like the music was like blaring over it and it was just like it was either just in text or it was being read, but the music was so loud that they couldn't they, they thought it was hard to hear or something like that. It was a yeah. So, yeah, there's like all kinds of probably all kinds of examples from TV where you could you could apply to uh, to social media. Finally, today, we're going to take a look at the unusual saga of oncopeptides, multiple myeloma treatment, Pepaxto. The drug received an accelerated approval in late February 2021, but the company decided to voluntarily withdraw the approval 239 days later amid concerns about increased risk of death compared to BMS's Pomalist. The product's time in the market was the shortest of any accelerated approval, but on, on uh, January 21st, Oncopeptides decided that it would withdraw the withdrawal after it says it looked at its clinical trial data again, as well as some other trials in response to questions from European regulators about its application there. So while the product will remain off the market in the U.S., it still remains approved. The FDA has not finished the official withdrawal process at that time. So as the uh, Federal Register noticed, announcing the move had not been published. But the kicker here is that Oncopeptides announced that in while in rescinding its withdrawal of the accelerated approval, that it would not be able to say what scientific reasoning drove the decision. Company officials said regulations require, required the material event to be disclosed, but also prevented detailing the scientific issues at hand. So to say this is unusual might be an understatement. I'm curious what you all think of this. I guess the most perplexing thing for to me, Derek, is um, what you mentioned about the company not being able to sort of go into what this new data is that that um, you know motivated them to change their mind about voluntarily pulling the product. Um, I mean, I, I know that often FDA will say they can't, you know, offer up a company, you know, conf information, but I've I've never heard of a company. What a reason why a company would be sort of prohibited from sharing that data unless it's something related to compromising like an ongoing clinical trial. I, I guess I, I'm just very perplexed as to what what the actual reasoning is here and even just in terms of like their responsibilities to investors or so forth, you would think they would have to sort of provide more detailed information. Yeah, that was what the, the people kind of, you know, you're you know, telling, talking to people about this. So they were saying the same kind of thing, like, what do you mean? They can't say this, they can't give the scientific reason. <laughs> that was like the big question, like, why can't they do that? And and I'm not going to profess to be an expert in um, this. This company's based in Sweden, and I don't understand their regulatory system at all. So there could be, they could have regulatory issues they have to deal with over there because they're based there. I don't know. But yeah, the the reason th th that was a kind of a the interesting part of that of this uh, story, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that the the company so far hasn't even said why they can't say why that the, uh, <laughs> uh, the product is uh, um, that they have to keep the data um, uh, uh, secret. Um, you know, we we saw you know at the uh, uh, outset of the uh, uh, pandemic, and you know uh, even now, there's a lot of 
finger pointing between uh, um, companies and uh, um, NIH and the government about for kind of, you know, uh, you know, who can disclose what data when and, you know, the government says we don't want to do uh, science by press release and then the, you know, companies say, well, you know, the, uh, the academic researchers who are doing the, the research want to sort of kind of uh, publish this stuff, so that's why we, we're not disclosing it and sort of kind of, uh, that's why it's being held on to. So there could be something like that, there could be sort of a, you know, some sort of clinical trial uh, unbinding, as you say, Sarah. Um, it's hard to say until the companies are kind of, uh, um, you know, acknowledges what's uh, what's going on, but there is obviously sort of a very interesting dynamics going on there, and uh, you know, obviously you you want a uh, a, a rigorous uh, you know peer review system to the 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 extent that sort of peer review is an effective uh, um, method of getting uh, high quality data out there, but uh, you also want to uh, be able to uh, you know communicate sort of fast breaking uh, information as well. So there's a real uh, real tension perhaps there. And the other issue, of course, is you know that they the company plans to talk to FDA again about about the uh, about the product, and you know you wonder what FDA is going to do about this. Um, they uh, they had an advisory committee meeting scheduled to talk about the accelerated approval of Papaxto, and the original withdrawal was was done only a few days before that meeting was scheduled to go. So you wonder if maybe they will schedule the meeting again and you know to kind of you know get their concerns in a public you know give their concerns in a public forum and maybe have the company explain you know their new interpretation of the clinical data in in same kind of um you know setting and at least you know and, and get some you know in addition to you know soliciting outside opinions but uh you know that that kind of the uh, the agency's uh, kind of next move here might might be very interesting as well well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 